But in the beginning of the message, Jesus opens with these incredibly gracious words, Matthew chapter 5, 1, all these beatitudes, these incredible blessings, all this divine favor that's upon us by God's initiative. It's not because we deserve it. It's not because we've earned it, because that's the agape love of God. He's just good. So he's pouring out blessings. He wants to be real, personal, powerful, and active in our lives in unbelievable ways. And then we get right into what we looked at last week which was a call to living into the extraordinary character transformation of becoming like Christ. The summary of it was Jesus said, you're going to be the salt of the earth. You're going to be a light in the world. You're going to have so many good deeds flowing out of you that people are going to look at your life and be like, wow, God must be active in that person. Jesus goes on to say, in fact, you're going to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. And our main point last week was Jesus was not joking or kidding or lying. And we got to be very careful that we don't take the mindset, the defeated mindset, when we hear all these high ethical standards, which we're going to get into the meat of it today, these high character calls that we're not too quick in our reflexive nature to lean on grace and be like, oh, well, Jesus didn't really mean that because I'm just a sinner and I can never live up to that. I can never do that no way. That's not, that's, no, but thank, Jesus died for me, so I'm good. That is 100% against Jesus' teaching in this section of his sermon. He is 100% serious that by his grace and with his grace, and when we live into the practices of the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, we will grow in increasingly high Christ-like character. That's why he's teaching this. Not to make you feel bad that you don't live up, but to give us a vision for the kind of extraordinary, supernatural life of character growth that is possible by God's grace. So, that was last week. That was, hey, I did pretty good. That was four weeks and four minutes. That's, I'm getting better at that. So now, we're going to get right into the meat of these high ethical teachings of Jesus, these high character expectations that are not impossible ideals. They are your future. That's how you should look at it. Don't look at me, oh, well, I'm not there today, so, oh, well, I'm a sinner. No, this is not an impossible ideal. This is my future according to the grace of God in my life, when I say yes and put it into practice. So as we get into the next number of, actually there are six, what you might call real life, daily life issues that Jesus addresses. I mean, he gets real. Goes right after anger, lust, revenge, lies. It's like, Jesus, you actually know what life's about, huh? <laughs> you know where the struggle's at. You know what makes life good or bad? He's going to go right after him. I want to keep your let's keep our eyes on a construction that's intentional of Jesus where he says, "You have heard it was said, but I say to you." There is something intentional and very important that Jesus is doing. He is going to put forth a an old way of life, an old command. You have heard it was said, and then he's going to go into a specific kind of an, it might be a specific Old Testament command. It might be the current wisdom of the day of a rabbi, of the rabbis, but it's, 
Essentially, it's going to be a contrast. The old way, and he's not necessarily saying it's bad. It's he's saying he's got something higher and even better. So when he is saying that you and I and we in the kingdom of God will have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees, he's not joking. He's like, here's six examples. The Pharisees are kind of living in this world. I've got something even higher for you. So he's going to say, here's an old command, and then he's going to say, here's the new kingdom command, the higher, even higher standard that, yes, you can live into when you follow his kingdom practice. That's the third thing to look for. Every single time, he's going to give us a kingdom practice right on the heels of the, the kingdom command or the new way of life and calls us to act. He's going to like literally tell us exactly what to do, how to act in this tough situation of everyday life that we're all familiar with. But it's a way of acting, a way of doing, that comes into agreement with God's will in order to break the vicious cycle of whatever it may be, anger, lust, revenge, retaliation. There's a specific act, a practice, that when we do it, live into it, it helps to break the cycle and helps release the kingdom of God into those situations. And as we do that, it's transforming our character and our life. I think the word practice is a really good one because it's an action step that you don't have to necessarily feel it to do it. I remember practice, that's a good word for me because like with sports, right? practice our action steps and you don't necessarily have all the feelings to want to do it but you still do it because you know it's going to help get you to the goal that the coach has put in front of you and oftentimes when you get into practice then the feelings come with it as we obey and put it into practice God's grace <laughs> is with us and the emotions come with it and the word practice is also important because it's literally what Jesus said at the Sermon on the Mount, which I started with. Build your life on the rock. Well, how do you do that? Matthew 7, 24 to 27. Hear these words of mine and put them into practice. It's a way of life. We're all practicing something in regards to these issues that Jesus is going to address. So Jesus says, practice the kingdom way of life so it gets better. <laughs> So that's the kingdom practice. All right. So old way of life or old commands, new way of the kingdom, kingdom commands, and then a kingdom practice. Let's look for it. Matthew 5, 21 to 24. You have heard that it was said to those of old. There's the old way. You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So that's the old way. You shall not murder. That's good. That's a good command. That's <laughs> in the Ten Commandments. Jesus doesn't say stop that. He says, I have something even higher than that. That's what he's going to go on to say. The new kingdom way of life. And as you're reading this, just again, ask yourself, is there anything in here where Jesus 
is, is putting up a, a high ideal that's meant to be heard as an impossible ideal that you're just supposed to be like, oh, I'm a sinner, thanks for Jesus. Look for it, because that's the common Christian conception, and it's nowhere in here. He's just 100% serious in there's an old way, I have a higher way, and here's how you do it with God's grace. So we gotta keep retraining our mind that we can actually live into this extremely high standard and high character that Jesus sets forth. That's why he's teaching this. Now, is it gonna happen overnight? No. But nothing good really does. <laughs> this is a way of life that we keep practicing and practicing and practicing. And as we do it, we are going to be transformed into the character of Christ. If you give up the first time you fail, you won't. Or the second or the third or the tenth time. This is a way of life that we practice until our character is transformed to be like Christ in this area. You've heard it was said of, to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, so here's the new teaching that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. Jesus' new commandments, if you will. His vision for life and what's possible in the kingdom of God. But I say to you, so he's taking an authoritative position above the teachers of the law of the day. He's saying, I mean, he's quoting the Old Testament and saying, like, it's good, but I have something even better. I mean, that's, it's, it's not subtle to those in that day who have ears to hear and eyes to see what he's doing, and that's why he's getting in so much trouble. He's taking an authoritative position saying, I have something better than the Ten Commandments, better than the law, a higher one. Well, who's allowed to make a higher law than the law? <laughs> are, you, are you the son of God? I mean, you see where it's going? Okay. But I say to you that everyone who is angry, sorry, I didn't emphasize the right thing. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. The new way, the kingdom command, the new vision for life that Jesus believes is possible is overcome anger. It's not just about in, uh, the final external action of not murdering which still stands, <laughs> he goes way, way, way deeper and says, you can overcome anger. That tiny little flicker in the heart where murder begins, that's how deep God wants to go and transform your character. You can overcome anger. We live in a world where anger 
is a vicious cycle that damages and disconnects and destroys relationships. Now, it could be something really big. Someone's really angry. Some of the examples Jesus gives, you know, insults start, start flying. You fool! I mean, that that's, sounds pretty mild to us. So, unfortunately, human language has developed to have much better insults than that. <laughs> but you get his point where there's an anger level insults are flying, the other person flies back with more insults, and it goes back and forth and spirals until the relationship is just broken. It can go for individuals, groups, tribes, races, nations. It can go all the way up. Look at it in our world. Is it not what's exactly happening? A vicious cycle of anger that then becomes insults, that then becomes damaged, dysfunctional, and even destroyed relationships on an individual level all the way up. Or it can start with something really small. Could be a, a, what is a petty offense, a minor offense. It could be someone's feelings get hurt by an ill-spoken word. Someone is disrespectful or, or not compassionate, and it, and it hurts, and, it, and you carry it with you. It's like, oh. Or someone is, even when we're insecure, we can perceive actions to be hurtful even when they're not intended to be, and they still hurt. And if they're not dealt with and confronted, something that can be relatively small or start small can become a foothold, which is a Bible verse. Don't let the sun go down on your anger because the enemy will get a foothold, and that's spoken to believers. So, the devil can have power in your life when you give it to him by allowing anger to remain. And I would say, and any of those things remain, <laughs> become more than a foothold, a stronghold. Any of these things that Jesus talks about, anger, lust, retaliation, lies, if you practice these things, first it's a foothold, then it's a stronghold, then it's a root that is destroying all sorts of things. And then Jesus comes along with a new way of life that's radical. He sets forth a kingdom practice in, over to, in order to overcome the vicious cycle and its horrible effects, the vicious cycle of anger that breaks down relationships. And his kingdom practice that he asserts is, my people will initiate and pursue reconciliation. If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave it. Leave your gift at the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. Go and be reconciled. That's you. It's on you and me to initiate and pursue reconciliation. That is the kingdom practice to overcome the vicious cycle of anger. It's interesting because instead of 
focusing on, you know, who, well, who started it? Whose fault is it? I mean, I'm a parent of, of three boys. That's always the question, right? Hey, let's be reconciled. Let's practice right now. Go talk to your brother. It's never, you're right. That's the kingdom practice. It's, it was his fault. He started it. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. It's always his fault. It's always his fault. It's never yours. And, and Jesus is like the great parent. He's like, I don't care. Be reconciled. Instead of focusing on who may have started it or who's the most at fault, Jesus walks into the scene and basically says, that's not what it's about. It's about who's going to stop it. Who's going to stop the vicious cycle of anger? Ill-spoken words, name-calling, and all the brokenness in the relationship that results. Practice reconciliation, Jesus says. To be a, a follower of mine, your high calling is to practice it, initiate it, pursue it. This is a call to courage. Nobody is excited about doing this, right? I mean, you've got a relationship that's hurting, it's broken, it's, it's damaged. Who wakes up in the morning like, oh, sweet. Today is the day. I will initiate and pursue reconciliation because it is fun. No. If you know what's coming, you're like, daylight savings, just go away. You know? I don't know what that meant. You want to avoid it, right? It's hard. This is a call to courage. I mean, listen to what Jesus is saying. This is that high ethical, high character standard. This is the call to courage, the courage to become a person that practices reconciliation as a way of life, even when you don't feel it, because you're probably never going to feel it in the sense of like, wow, I am so excited to do this. You practice it anyway because you have a character that says, even when it's hard, I don't quit. Even when it's hard, I'm going to do this because Jesus said it's the right thing to do because it's what will break the stronghold of that vicious cycle of anger in my life, in my relationships, in the world around me. And so Jesus has a call to courage, even though it's hard and it's not fun and it's scary and we're going to make every excuse in our mind and in the world to run away from it. That's where we say it doesn't matter. Jesus said do it. Practice it. Take the initiative and pursue reconciliation. And to the point where it becomes part of who you know you are. Just like, I mean, anything that takes discipline in life when our emotions aren't there, we say, it doesn't matter. This is what I do. And so I do it. Even when I don't feel like it. And God absolutely blesses that willingness to put into practice his way of life. It's remarkably simple, yet really, really hard. This is part of that dying to self. It's part of the bearing of the cross that Jesus talks about later. This is hard. That's why all of us 
shrink back at times and don't feel like it and want to make excuses. It's hard. But it's so simple. Jesus promises that the path to overcoming anger is practicing reconciliation. Digging into the scripture a little bit more to see the practicality of this, Jesus says, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, and obviously, you know, Greek is, the, is a uh, gendered language, so this doesn't mean <laughs> only men have problems in their relationships. <laughs> this is inclusive, girls. You got problems too. So, <laughs> hey, I'm just preaching the Bible. It's like, just, it's in there. It's in there. Just making sure we are an inclusive community. What the Bible really means is brothers and sisters. If you are offering your gift at the altar and therefore remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar. First, be reconciled to your brother or sister. Then come, then come and offer your gift. So this is describing a contextual in that day. It's a, it's a modern day, or a, excuse me, for that time period, Jesus is describing the practice of going to the synagogue or the temple to worship. It would most likely be on the Sabbath day on a weekly basis. So it is relatively, if not exactly equivalent to what we would call Sunday worship. This is the Sabbath day right now. There's a worship service. We go, to, we go to the altar, right? We come before the altar with worship. So effectively, Jesus says, hey, if you're on your way to church and remember that your brother or sister has something against you, just drive right on by, go to their house, and initiate and pursue reconciliation first. Now, that might be a slight exaggeration in the sense of logistically that's sometimes not even possible if someone doesn't live right next to you or out of town or whatever. But I do not believe it's an exaggeration at all to say that for Jesus, to test out the scripture here, what Jesus is saying, it's more important to Jesus that we practice initiating and pursuing the reconciliation reconciliation of relationships than participating in a worship service while we know relationships remain broken. That's not an exaggeration. He says, if you're going to worship and you realize you got a problem with a brother or sister, stop what you're doing. Leave it there and go reconcile. That's the practice of his kingdom to bring breakthrough of his kingdom, which would be overcoming anger. He's showing us a way out of the vicious cycle that we get stuck in. A question to ask as we look at this is, wow, that's, that 
If we actually take Jesus at his words that he's serious, that we should practice reconciliation in such a manner and at such a high priority that we would even be called to to stop worshiping, leave it there because it's that important to God that we attempt to reconcile relationships. Why is that so important to Jesus? This is the first thing he talks about, actually, in his specific high character commands. So you could say, is it first because it's that important? Why? Wow, why? And I would argue here with, with Scripture that this is so high, super high on Jesus' priority list because it really gets to the heart of what the kingdom of heaven is all about. Relationships. Jesus said it like this when asked, what's the greatest thing? What's the most important command? Right? We're talking about the commands that show the values in life. And Jesus said famously, Matthew 22, a little later in this book, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. So that's interesting because the person who asked Jesus, the lawyer who was trying to trap Jesus, said, what's the one greatest command? And Jesus didn't play his game, and he connected two, which is interesting. He could have just stopped at saying, love God. I love God. It's just the church that I don't like. Me and God, we're good, man. We're so good on our own. That's why I don't go to church because people just mess things up. Jesus said, (laughs) you love God, and inextricably connected with that, meaning you cannot take them apart, is a second command. You shall love your neighbor like yourself. In other words, the horizontal relationships that we have in this world, in your family, in this church, are a reflection of our vertical relationship with God. If you want to follow the teaching of Jesus, you don't get to disconnect those two. If you disconnect those two, you are not in the teaching of Jesus. Jesus said the most important things in life are loving God and connected to that is then how we love one another. Jesus is favorite disciple, his beloved, went on to say this as his working out of this reality about how the vertical affects and reflects the horizontal and the horizontal, horizontal reflects and affects the vertical. John went on to say, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Let's just suffice it to say, in a nice way, he's saying they're connected. (laughs) Loving God and loving one another. Our vertical and horizontal relationships are absolutely connected. They are a reflection of one another. That ultimately is good news. 
But it's a challenge. It's a challenge. Are we going to become a people of courage that trusts Jesus and puts these things into practice? It says, I am going to become a person of character that practices the pursuit and initiation of reconciliation when needed. Behind it all is the good news that God didn't design us to live with a bunch of broken relationships. It's not his will. God does not want us disconnected from our loved ones. He doesn't want us living separated from one another in anger. He doesn't want things swept under the rug so that they fester, become a a foothold to a stronghold, and later explode in bitterness. God's good news is that he designed us for and wants honest, open, authentic, deep, trusting, forgiving, life-giving relationships. And you know that when you've experienced that, it's like that's, this is like the highest currency in life. There's nothing better than those kind of relationships. This is his kingdom. This is his new kingdom command that we can overcome anger and get rid of that junk in relationships. But there's a kingdom practice that we have to be willing to engage in. You initiate reconciliation. It's a hard word from Jesus. He's saying if we do not initiate reconciliation, we have no right to complain about the quality of our relationships. Whining about bad relationships never makes them better. Practicing reconciliation makes them better. It's that simple, Jesus is saying. And this is for all of us. This is, I'm saying this for me. It is, is, is it not so much easier to whine and complain behind closed doors about bad relationships than it is to practice initiating reconciliation? I know the answer to that. It's yes. <laughs> For all of us. So how on earth do we <laughs> muster up the courage to live into this? There's going to be a part two for for next week where we're going to get into some specifics based on Jesus' teaching about the motivation in practicing reconciliation, the when do we practice reconciliation, the, the how of it, and what happens when we try and it doesn't go well. Those are like real life stuff. So we're going to spend next week much more on the the nuts and bolts. But I want to close with a little bit of a meditation on how do we muster up the courage to pursue reconciliation? And I would encourage you, go back to the Beatitudes. Those are God's gracious promises to us the way that he is at work in our life, the way that he wants to be present, personal, and powerful based on his grace, not our performance. And from the beauty of God's gracious work in our lives, all these things that he initiates, not because we deserve it, but because he's good. You could say the Beatitudes are a our promises about our identity in Christ, when we soak in them and their good news, their grace, when we experience them, 
they encourage us to be able to take steps in these kingdom practices. For example, Matthew 5, 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. So that's some deep stuff. For they shall be called children of God. The idea in that blessing, that beatitude, is that God has gone to great lengths to make peace with us. That is his nature. That is the core of the gospel. That he sent his one and only son to live a perfect life, to go through the hell of death or the death of hell or hell of death, hellish death, hell on our behalf, resurrect from the dead in order to reconcile us to himself. He is the ultimate peacemaker. Ephesians 3 is an unbelievably beautiful passage about how it says that he broke down on the cross in his body, in his flesh, on the tree. He broke down the walls of hostility between God and humanity. Destroyed that barrier. But you know what it also goes on to say? As he broke down the wall of hostility between us and them to make the two groups one. To make us into peacemakers so that we can take on the ministry of reconciliation. We can take on the ministry of being peacemakers like our heavenly father made peace with us. So in other words, even when you're hurt and you're offended and you want to separate, it's get back to the basics of the gospel and all the good news that, wow, God didn't leave you separated from him even when you deserved it. He went to the greatest lengths possible at the greatest cost to himself in order to reconcile you to him. So reflect your heavenly father's heart out in the world and go be a peacemaker. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. It's the same exact idea. God has not given you what you deserve. That's what's mercy. We deserve hell, but we get heaven. So maybe even when you're hurt and you're like, that person deserves, you let God remind you, yeah, and what do you deserve? But I stepped in with mercy. And maybe that'll help stir up a little, little simmer down that righteous vengeance into a little bit of mercy. Well, since God gave me a second and third and fourth and thousandth chance, maybe I can extend a little bit of mercy here and attempt a reconciliation. What about blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I think that applies beautifully here. That's a promise that God knows the pain that you're in. I would assert that the vast majority of human pain and suffering is relational. That hurts a lot worse than bodily pain. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
So that's a promise that God sees your pain and it's not okay with him. It's not his will. He doesn't want to leave you there hurting, broken, messed up. He wants to heal you. He wants to lift your head. He wants to heal you from the inside out with the goodness of his presence. But sometimes that requires us taking action steps to help in that healing process. If you've got a bunch of broken relationships around you and you're mourning and in pain, they are not going to get better by just feeling the pain of that and being bummed. Jesus says, I'm with you to help you heal. Are you going to take the action steps with me necessary to initiate that kingdom breakthrough in your life and the world around you? So that's where a couple weeks ago I said we got to go back to the Beatitudes. As we get into these kingdom practices and it's like, wow, that's a little overwhelming. Go back to the grace at the beginning. The Beatitudes are the overwhelming tidal wave of grace that God initiates into our life. They are the source of strength to live in to this new character into these new practices. They are the promises that when we will live into the kingdom practices that Jesus calls us to, there's a, there's a courage, there's a strength that can be found to do the practices when we bask in his goodness and grace. I actually want to share delve into this just a little bit more, that this verse here isn't just about anger. It's easy to just say, oh, well, I'm not angry, so I'm off the hook. And um, this verse here speaks to so many different issues that we could have with other brothers or sisters. And so I want to read it one more time. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. I want to go over those specific examples. So in church culture, there's been this idea that it's okay to talk about other people <laughs> and say, well, they're just a fool. They're a hypocrite. They're doing this. They're doing that. I don't agree with that. You see that right here. If we're saying in our hearts, you fool, we'll be liable to the hell of fire, <laughs> according to Jesus. Um, or if we're insulting our brothers and there, there's an idea in Christian culture where this is okay, where we can kind of talk about the junk of, I don't like when they said this. I don't like this about them. Oh, look, look, I'm judging their heart because how can they, you know, say that and do that? And Jesus is speaking out against this and saying that this is not okay. This is not okay. This is not his will. And this in many circles, and I would say in the American Christian church, has actually become a value 
where we talk about other believers like they are less than, like we see and they don't, like they're really missing the mark and we see how they're not walking out things the way that they should be. And we don't talk to them about it, but we hold those feelings in our hearts, call them a fool in our hearts, and we talk to others about it. And there is nothing more divisive. There is nothing that tears apart the unity and the kingdom being built in community more than that. And then uh, this verse goes on in verse 23, and I'm actually going to read the Passion Translation. I was just reading ESV, but I'm going to flip over because the ESV says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift and go be reconciled to your brother or sister. So that sounds like it's saying only a kind of a one-sided thing of, hey, if you remember your brother has something against you, but this is a tandem thing. This is if you have something against your brother or sister, if you have negative thoughts against your brother or sister, if you're thinking, hey, you're a fool, I think you're a hypocrite, you're not living up to this, I don't like when you said this. Now, that's not to go in an arrogant way, that's actually would be to go in a humble way. Hey, when you said this, this is what I felt like you meant, and I just kind of want to talk about this. Or even just confessing, hey, I've been judging you in my heart, and I want to apologize for that. I want there to be reconciliation. Um, I want to read the Passion Translation of that. So then if you are presenting a gift before the altar, and suddenly you remember a quarrel you have with a fellow believer. So we'll go into the Greek with that next week, but... Quarrel, what we have here is if there's just something wrong in the relationship, if there's something that's not healthy, that's not right, if there's not a beautiful reconciliation and unity in the relationship, if there's not that beautiful reconciliation and unity that Christ paid for, then you need to go talk to your brother or sister. And, and we all need to go talk to our brother or sister. And this has become a really false value, this idea of this um, ignorant arrogance where we can talk about people in the church, fellow believers, in a negative way, and we're all guilty of it. If we're all honest, we all do it. Every single one of us. Both of us do it, and we need to repent of it. No, I'm just, let's be honest. We all do this. This is human nature. I have these negative thoughts about this person. I'm going to keep them about myself. Whether it's other believers, whether it's mentors, whether it's leadership. If, you, if we have negative thoughts and are calling somebody a fool in our hearts or even just thinking, oh, I don't really think they believe what they're talking about. If we're making judgments in our hearts, we are 100% against the will of God and we are creating division and we are absolutely severing the unity of the spirit. And guess what? The power of the spirit flows when there is unity and when we hide these things in our hearts and we are not open and we do not talk about them and we do not repent, we are 100% cutting off the power of the Holy Spirit from flowing in the body. I think that's all I have to say about that.
Dance a new dance like David Dan.